Well, let's start here this morning. I have five statements on prayer, and I'm curious if you could uh, maybe just look at these statements, and they are on your handout, but you could look at them and say, okay, which of these statements do you think really does the best job of maybe describing prayer, defining prayer, uh, when you look at these five statements, having a conversation with God about my life? Um, how about a healthy, health, prayer is a healthy way to process the emotions I am dealing with in order to find peace? Um, how about um, prayer is bringing my burdens and requests to God? Um, prayer is acknowledging God's presence in my life? Or prayer is an act of worship? Um, I, I wonder which of those you would say, that, that, that's a good description of prayer when I think of prayer. Um, Maybe even more challenging, what if I said to you, could you circle the one there that you think is the best description of prayer? Which is the one that really nails it? You think that's the best description of prayer? Um, now, I, I came up with those five kind of definitions, and I'll be honest that even if I had to circle one, it would be really difficult. My spiritual side would circle the last one, of course, that prayer is an, is an expression of my worship. But really, what is prayer when we stop and think about prayer? And so I think to, to, really, to really get an understanding of this idea of prayer, we have to kind of combine a few of these. And so here's a definition of prayer. Um, think about it this way. Prayer is an, is an expression of worship that acknowledges the presence of God in my life and seeks His will for my life. I think that really maybe nails it. It kind of brings a few of those ideas together um, it acknowledges, it's an expression of worship that acknowledges the presence of God in my life and seeks His will for my life. You know, we often think about prayer as bringing our requests to God, and, and that is part of prayer, it is. But as we saw last week, God already knows what my needs are before I even ask them. So that can't be the central reason for prayer. That can't be, not that I don't need to talk things through with God and share my requests with God, but the reality is there is something deeper here. And, and when I bring my requests to God, I think what I'm doing to a degree is in my worship, I'm acknowledging really a, a few things. Um, uh, I'm acknowledging a few things that God is present in my need. He is aware of my need. He's greater than my need. And yes, He even has a will within my need. So this is week two of a, of a series. We're talking about prayer, bowing down to look up. And here's the thing, we want to guard against prayers that are shaped by our emotions. We want to guard against this reality where I have a prayer life that is just driven by how I feel and, and how it makes me feel. Think about some of the emotions of prayer, and I put this on your handout with your, with your verses as well. Just a few ideas here, frustrated, confused, doubtful, intimidated, guilty, burdened, anger, hurt, or maybe excited, overjoyed, confident, courageous peaceful, hopeful, thankful, worshipful. Um, there are the emotions. There's, 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 I, I pray because of my emotions, because of how I feel. Maybe when I pray, I feel a certain way. Um, maybe I feel confused. Maybe I feel hurt that God doesn't answer my prayer. I feel guilty because I don't pray enough. Or maybe I pray and I'm hopeful and peaceful. All those emotions. The reality is we don't want our prayer to simply be driven and shaped by our emotions. That's the challenge that we really have. The reality is prayer can challenge our faith and build our faith at the same time. Um, both those realities take, take shape when we pray. It challenges us and it can build our faith at the same time. Um, 
here's the, the, the big idea. I shared this last week. This is what I, and I think as, as I get into this series, I sense that God's really going to use this a lot in this series. But the, the, the big idea last week is kind of the big idea for the series, that the higher we exalt God, the deeper our prayers will go. And I, and I think there really is something profound to this, that the more I exalt God in my life, the deeper um, my prayer life can go, and I can really pray about some of those things, and I can certainly get beyond that emotional component. We want a genuine worship of God to be what shapes and what drives our prayers. We want the reality of who I am in Christ and who He is in me to shape and, and really drive my prayers. And again, this speaks to that reality I mentioned earlier, that God is present in my need, that God is aware of my need, that He is greater than my need, and that He has a will even within my need. So I bring my requests to God, and even that's an act of worship that proclaims all of these things that I believe about God as I bring Him my request. So here's today's big idea for this message today that will shape this message. Really, you could almost say it's today's big challenge because this is a really challenging statement that I'm going to share with you. But here's what we need to do. We need to move from emotionally driven, self-centered prayer to spiritually grounded, God-centered prayer. And I think there's a lot in that. And I, and I have to stop and look at my own life and say how much of my own prayer life is not kind of emotionally driven, self-centered um, or my requests kind of, you know, are the foundation of it all and it's more about me rather than being centered in God and being spiritually grounded. To do this, we're going to look today at a prayer. We looked at the Lord's Prayer last week. Today we're in Ephesians 3. And this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays. And it's a very insightful and very powerful prayer as we see how he prayed for the church at Ephesus and how 2,000 years later he's praying for you and me. When he wrote this, he was thinking of us. He, he didn't know us by name, but he was thinking of those that would read this in the future. And he wants us to see something about prayer. He's going to give us some insight into what really matters in prayer and what our prayers should look, feel, and sound like. I think there's really something powerful here. So we're going to put the passage on here. Let's read this together, okay? We'll read this out loud together off the screen, and then we're going to unpack it, okay? For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a great prayer. Very nice job reading that this morning. And so we want to break this down. We're going to start with the very first line. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
uh, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, actually, the, the verse there on the screen, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but here's what he says in, in our prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But then, if you go back to, chapter, to, to verse 1 of this chapter, that's what Paul says. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul. So, here's kind of what's going on. Um, and, 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 you know, a pastor looks at this and thinks, wow, great, you know, for this reason in verse 1 and for this reason in, in verse 14. And like, well, there's a sermon outline there. Two reasons. You're great, you know. But here's what I think is going on. In Ephesians 3, Paul starts out for this reason. He's looking back to chapter 2 and, and verse 1 and what he just wrote to them. And, and then he kind of gets sidetracked. He kind of swerves off his thought a little bit. And he kind of gives a little autobiographical look into his own life, his own ministry and mission and message. And so he spends 13 verses talking about the revelations he had from God and talking about what's happened in his life. And then you get to verse 14 and he goes back and he says, for this reason. So he's just picking up his thought. What he's doing here is picking up his thought in verse 1. And he's talking about for this reason. Reason. What is the reason? What is the reason for this prayer? Well, for this reason, he's looking back to all the spiritual blessings he shared with them. He's looking back to their spiritual inheritance. Um, he's looking back to who uh, they are in Christ and who Christ is in them. And he's looking at the outworking of the gospel in their life. He's looking at all those things he has shared with them. And he's saying, for this reason, um, I'm going to pray for you guys. I gotta pray, I'm going to pray for you. Now, if you want to summarize that, and this isn't on your notes, and, and I just clarified this even uh, just last night and this morning, here's why he's praying for them. Because of the huge responsibility and potential in their life. Because Christ indwells them. The Holy Spirit indwells them. They have this huge potential and this huge responsibility in Christ. And because of that potential, because of, their, because of who they are in Christ and who He is in them, because of their spiritual blessings and their inheritance and the work of the gospel, they have this huge potential and responsibility. And so Paul says, I'm going to pray for you guys. And he prays a very powerful prayer for them. And that's what we're going to look at now. Four observations to move to a more God-centered prayer life. How do I move from these emotionally driven, self-centered prayers to these more spiritually grounded, God-centered prayers? And we'll see at the end why that is so fascinating. If we can really understand this and get there, we'll see at the very end why that is so powerful. So here's the, the first observation, is that Paul equates prayer with worship. And this is very similar to last week in the Lord's Prayer. We talked about this. But Paul again equates prayer with worship. I bow my knees before the Father. Here's what's fascinating. Everybody knows this is a prayer. Did you know though that actually in the original Greek, he never says the word prayer. He never specifically says I'm praying for you. What he says is I bow my knees before the Father. He, and so you understand that Paul, what Paul's doing here is Paul is, 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 is bringing together worship and prayer. He's equating them. That when he worshiped God, that was an act of prayer. And prayer was, in many ways, an act of worship. And so, uh, it's just fascinating that you don't really see it. Now, if you go to some of the newer translations, they actually insert the word pray. Two or three times, you'll read, they'll, they'll, they'll insert the word pray two or three times to help get the thought across, to keep the flow of the text. What's fascinating, if you look at this, and, and here's the thing about the Greek language, is that the Greek language had no punctuation, and the Greek language originally didn't have any verses. There were no verses in the Bible originally when it was written. 
God didn't uh, say this is verse this and verse that, and, and there's no punctuation. So it was kind of tricky at times. They would basically start a new, uh, a new like paragraph indent, basically when there was a new thought. But if you look in the text here today, at least in in the English Standard Version, we just read verses 13 through 19 is one sentence. That's enough to drive most grammar Nazis over the edge, right? <laughs> one sentence. So you understand this kind of kind of fascinating. So there's no prayer in there, but he is talking about prayer. He is bowing down in worship and in prayer for these individuals, these church, the church at Ephesus, and for you and me because of the incredible potential and responsibility that they have. One other thing about this bowing down aspect, can I just raise this? Bowing down is a specific way that we can express our worship of God. And I wondered about this. When's the last time in your worship you ever bowed down before God? Last time in your prayer life you ever bowed down before God? If the last time was when you were five and you knelt down before your bed and say, God bless mommy and daddy and uncle Jimmy, can I just challenge you? Go in the room, close the door. Now maybe you got bad knees and maybe it's not. Okay, I understand that. But if you can bow down, find some time to bow down in holy reverence before God and talk to Him, I think there is something to that. So, all right. First thing, second observation is that Paul here, what he does is, is shows us that we need to exalt the fatherhood of God. Again, this sounds very similar to the Lord's Prayer, but we need to exalt the fatherhood of God. And, uh, and so we see, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, okay? Now, again, we have a very relational context to the prayer. We're praying to a Father. We're praying to our Father. This is our personal heavenly Father we're talking to. God, way up there is your dad. We need to think about that in prayer, and we don't often think about that. Now, so think of how he exalts the fatherhood of God here, though. Think about how he exalts the fatherhood of God. Um, And again, the higher we exalt God, the deeper our prayers will go. But it's this idea of families. What does he mean by families? That all the families derive their name from God. What does he mean by families? Here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean the Markham family and the Campice family and the Lippincott family and the Post family and the Lawrence family and the Kreidoff family and the Verberkamos. He's not talking about our families. When he talks about families here, he's talking about really three groups of people that we know of, and there may be others that we don't know of, but one would be the Jewish kingdom. Abraham was the father and had a lot of offspring, and he was the father of a great nation. That's one family. The second family is you and I today in the body of Christ. We are a family. We've been adopted into God's family. Read a great piece of commentary this week that basically said, when we celebrate communion, we're showcasing the fact that we're a family because we're having a meal together like a family has a meal together. And then finally, the angelic beings, those on earth and those in heaven. And the angelic beings, they're their own family, at least three families. And so those would be the families that we would know of that are a part, uh, that, that derive their name from God the Father. And just note how this again exalts God. Here's a great, great, a great quote from the expositor's Greek New Testament. The Father makes the family. God is the Father of all. And if any community of intelligent beings, human or angelic, bears the great name of family, the reason for that lies in the relation of God to it. I love that. The Father makes the family. Our Heavenly Father makes us a family today as the body of Christ. He makes us one. And uh, 
that's just a beautiful thought to think about. Now think about how the fatherhood of God impacts the substance, emotions, and expressions of our prayer. How does praying to dad impact my prayers and my prayer life? How does that impact my prayer? We'd think about that a minute. Um, and I said it last week, you know, that a child is wired with a natural longing to be with their father or dad. I think it's true for you and me with God. We're just wired. He's our father. I, I think there's, there's a sense here where those that, that aren't a that aren't saved, they, they're, they're missing out on a family. They're missing out on a heavenly father that they're deep in their heart. They long for that their earthly father can't provide them. There's something they just miss. Think about this verse, Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, or Daddy, Daddy. We have this beautiful relationship with God the Father. And... Um, It's just the longing of our heart to want to spend time with our dad. You know, here's what I think is fascinating. When you think about this, you think about all the other religions that exist in the world. I do not know of another religion where the the God calls himself the father and adopts all of his worshipers as children and calls them a family. I just don't see that anywhere else. And so if you're going to choose, if you're going to choose a religion, you know, I'd choose... I choose Christianity. And, and then the, what makes it really a difference? Again, Christianity is what? It's not really a religion. It's a relationship where we are children and God is a father. It is so different than any other religion out there. It is so incredibly different, even the, the things that it claims. It's just amazing. There's nothing that compare, can compare. And again, that's what I said. Those who aren't saved are missing out on being a part of this incredible family. So, Paul equates Prayer and worship, worship and prayer. And then the second thing is that Paul exalts the fatherhood of God. Third observation, look at this. We need to pray below the surface. We need to pray below the surface. He talks about being strengthened in your inner being. And we talk about this reality that the more I exalt God, the deeper my prayers will go. And uh, there is something to that. And Paul is going to take this prayer and go a little deeper with it. How often do you, do you pray for your inner self? How often do you pray for your inner being, your inner man? How often do you pray for the roots of an issue and not just the issue? How often do you pray the roots for the roots of a struggle and not just the struggle? How often do you pray for the roots of your relationship and not just the relationship? How often do you really dig down in and really pray? Now, let's look at this from two sides, okay? First there is, well, here's what it is. Let's read it again. I pray that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let's, let's just unpack that thought, okay? First, there's the outer need. We have the outer need, and this is how we often pray. The outer need, the outer circumstance, this is how we often pray. Now, let me be clear. It's not wrong to pray for the outer need, for the physical circumstance, for the tangible relationship. That's not wrong. In fact, listen to what Paul writes to the church at at, at Philippians. So just so we're clear that it's okay, that it's okay to pray for your physical needs. Uh, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in 
Christ Jesus. Now, what's he saying here? He's telling us this. We must bring our petitions before God to experience the peace of God. So, yes, bring your petitions to God. And when you bring your petitions, you're worshiping God and you're exclaiming, you know, that God, yeah, he's, he, he, he's aware of my needs. He's greater than my needs. He has a will within my needs. All those things are going on. But I bring my petitions before God to experience the incredible peace of God. And sometimes I won't have peace if I don't bring those requests before God. That's what he is saying. Um, He wants us to share our heart. He's our father. He wants us to come. You know, a father wants his kids to come and say, hey, I'm scared, I'm, lo- I'm, I'm hurting, I'm lonely, I'm whatever, whatever they're battling with, I'm being bullied at school, whatever. And, and the father wants the son to come or the daughter to come and share what they're feeling and God wants us to come and share when we're troubled, hurting, and overwhelmed. Um, now, when we come to God with our petitions, does that mean we get exactly what we want? No, we don't get exactly what we want. We get what we need, though, and that's the beauty of it all. Uh, what we get is we get peace. See, we don't get exactly what we ask for all the time. Sometimes, maybe, but not always. But we get peace. We experience peace. And we're reminded of how much God loves us, how much He cares for us, and how deeply we can trust God. We really can trust Him. So all of that is going on when I bring my requests to God. It goes back to what I said last week. Sometimes we think we have this huge need in our life and we're all worried and stressed and finally we stop and get alone with God and talk to God about it. Next thing we know that that issue wasn't even the issue. I just needed to spend some time with God, alone with God. I needed His perspective and His presence to be realized in my life. So, so, That said, while we often pray for the outer circumstance, here's what Paul does in this prayer. He prays for the inner self, the inner being. That's who Paul prays for. And I think this is pretty significant. So here's what I think is fascinating. Go back to Philippians 4, and I've never really noticed this before. I never noticed this before until... This week. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what's the result? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What's he saying here? Here he's saying that we must dwell on the things of God to experience the peace of God. What a great balance. It's not like I just come and unload my heart and my concerns to God and I walk away with peace. That's part of it. But part of it is I come and I dwell on the things of God. And as I dwell on Him and His word and His truth and His beauty and His perspective and His praise and who He is, and then I can walk away with the peace of God. It, I think both are very important. Very, very important. Paul moves from my external petitions to my internal thoughts. He moves to my inner man. The fact is there is a strength and a a peace, a strength and a joy that we can find in our inner man that can carry us through any struggles we face. We can find that, but it's often overlooked in our prayer life. We don't think to pray for our inner man. Think about this. You can have cancer and you can just pray for the physical need, the physical illness, or you can pray... For the, what's going on inside of me, spiritually, emotionally, physiologically, relationally? What's happening in my life because I have cancer? How's it affecting everything around me? We can pray for all of those things and pray spiritually for God to use this cancer 
to just draw me closer to Him. We can have a marital struggle again. We can pray, Lord, just help me work things out with my wife. Or we, we can pray deeper. We can look into, we can say, show me into the spiritual mirror of my life, you know. What's going on? Is there any, think about some of the emotions we mentioned earlier. Here they are again. Think how these things Think about how these emotions are fleshed out in our relationships and can cause us to have issues with others. Pride, hurt, anger, fear, trust, doubt, jealousy. So we pray, is there any hurt in my life? Is there any fear, any doubt, any anger, any pride, anything that's causing this marital tension, this relational tension with my boss at work or with my, with my, with my kids? We need, we need to pray and we need to, we need to look deeper. And sometimes it's scary to open the door. How many, how many couples never make it to marriage counseling because it's scary to open the door and look in the mirror? You know, to, what am I going to see if I look in the mirror? The Word of God is in many ways like a mirror. It can expose and convict us. So we need to identify the emotions that are in our inner self that we're dealing with. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Something very powerful there about the Word of God. And so, you see, we... God wants us to pray for our inner being, for our inner man. He wants us to, to get down there and pray for the roots of our life, for that strength that can handle anything, that strength that is willing to look into the mirror because it takes a, a spiritual resolve and an inner strength to look into the mirror and say, hey, what's going on in my life? What's causing the issues in my life? Here's Paul's goal when you think about So what's Paul's goal in all this when he prays for their inner man? Here's his goal. He, he, and his goal for you and I, that our faith would produce a spiritually grounded, God-centered life. That our faith would, and maybe produce isn't the right word, I, I think I changed it on the handout to reveal. That our faith would reveal a spiritually grounded, God-centered life. That when people look at me through my faith, they would see Christ in me and they would see a spiritually grounded, God-centered life, not an emotionally driven, self-centered life. That's the challenge that we face, and, and that's what will work out into our prayers. So, so Paul prays below the surface. Do we pray below the surface? When's the last time you prayed below the surface, below the, the, sur the surface of your circumstances and your feelings? And your, when, when did you really pray deep down and say, Lord, what really are the emotions that are driving my life right now? Here's the last observation. Last observation is this. We need to ground ourselves in the love of God. We need to ground ourselves in the love of God. And that's what Paul's going to do as he closes this out. Ground us in God's love, being rooted and grounded in love. And, and um, again, here's the reality. To move from emotionally driven, self-centered prayer to spiritually grounded, God-centered prayer, you have to be grounded in the love of God. What does that mean? You have to know how much God loves you. You have to be so convinced how much God loves you. That despite what goes on in your life, despite how you're feeling, I know God loves me. I just know He does. And I don't doubt that for one minute, despite what is going on in my life. 
Ephesians 3.17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we can look at this from two perspectives. First, we need to know the vastness of God's love. We need to know the vastness, the incredible vastness of God's love, how high, how deep, how wide, and how long His love is. It's just all over the place. And we could break into those four dimensions, and I'll touch on them briefly here, but the the real reality here is just some think there's no purpose to them. Some think the four points there represent the four points of the cross. The idea is that God's love is vast, and it's just everywhere, and we can't really outrun it. His love is high. You could think of praise. Think of our worship. One of the measurements here, when you think of the height and depth of God's love, it's the same measurement starting from a different vantage point. The height of God's love starts from the cross or starts from the earth and is measured to the heavens. Think of that. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. That's how great His love is higher than the heavens. And then, of course, at the same time, there's the, uh, the other element, God's love is deep. That starts at the throne of God in the heavens and goes to where? It goes to the cross and all the way, as he descended from the cross, all the way into where? Into hell. The depth of God's love took our Savior from heaven to the cross to the grave. Wow, pretty amazing. In the story of the prodigal son, it says the prodigal gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. He ran into a far country. And the reality is, maybe you know of a prodigal, and they've ran a far away from God. They're far from God. You know what? No matter how far anyone is from God, no one has gone as far as the Father did, going from heaven to the cross, into the grave. God's love is incredibly deep. So just think of the cross when you think of the depth of God's love, how He shared our pain, our our hurt, our our brokenness on the cross. God's love is wide. When you think of the the wideness of God's love, I think about the fact that God's love encompasses every circumstance, every relationship, every moment of our life. There's nothing in our life that is outside the outstretched hands of God's incredible love. Romans 8.38 For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The incredible depth, width of God's love, wider than anything. In fact, you think of the width of God's love, think of this verse, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the incredible width of God's love. The height, the depth, the width, and then there's the length. Think about God's love is long. and Think about how God's love is long-suffering how he's patient. Think about how God's love is long in the sense that God's love is eternal. The the same love that created this earth 6,000 years ago is is, is the same love that sent Christ to the cross to redeem it 4,000 years later. And it's the same cross that 2,000 years from the cross to today sustains you and I every day. It's the same love. His love is long. And it's the love that will sustain us through eternity. The love of God is long. 
In fact, think about this amazing comparison right here. Hebrews chapter 8, look at this. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will have love towards them and their sin, and I will remember their sins no more. Think about that. Think about what he's saying there. He's saying this. In regards to our sin, God's memory is not long, but his love is. Isn't that great? When it comes to our sins, God forgets our sins, but when it comes to his love, his, his love is incredibly long. Incredibly, incredibly long. You cannot outrun the vastness of God's love. Here it is, Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit, writes David? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. No matter where David would go, he said God's love would be there. Here's the thing. This debunks a very popular myth that God cannot be in the presence of sin. Because here's the reality. It says God's love will be where? God's love will descend all the way into hell. I'm not even going to try to unpack that this morning. I have to study that out a little more. But I think it's pretty fascinating that God's love, even if David went into hell, God's presence, his spirit would be there, his love would be there. I don't know what that looks like for those that are in hell. Other than they, they don't want anything to do with God. But it's pretty fascinating to think about the love of God and we cannot outrun it. And then the other perspective here is the greatness of God's love. There's the vastness of God's love. Then there's the greatness of God's love. 319, this is in the New Living Translation, uh, different translation. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to fully understand or to understand fully. There's this love that is so great, so incredible, so powerful that our minds cannot fully comprehend it. You know what it's like? We talked earlier about, think about this, we prayed earlier, right? And we brought our petitions to God so that we would get the peace that does what? The peace that surpasses understanding. And here he says, I want you to know the love of God that does what? It surpasses understanding. There is a reality where there, God has things for us that we can't even comprehend. I don't know why I feel such love. I don't know why I feel such peace. I don't know why I feel such joy. I don't understand exactly why that is. There is a peace and a love that surpasses understanding. He wants us to experience it. Let me give you two verses here. 1 John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us, okay, I love God in response because He loved me first. My love for Him is a response of His love for me. And then 1 John 5, 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. So if I love God, He loves me, so I love Him in response. And if I love Him, what will I do? I will, I'll, I'll obey Him. I'll be concerned about His will and His way. So think about that, and let's apply it to this statement then. God's love produces trust, okay? Think about this. God loves me, and that produces trust in me when I know the incredible vastness and greatness of His love. Psalm 13, 5, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. So God's love produces trust. And think about that then. Trust produces surrender. So God loves me, and in response, I love him back. And, and so I trust God because I know he loves me. 
And when I, when, I, when I know that he loves me and I trust him, then I will surrender to him. I'll be obedient to him. In fact, think about this. To pray God's will, I must be grounded in God's love. If I want those deeper prayers where I'm going to pray, God, what is your will for my life? What is your will for, for my relationships? What is your will for my job? What is your will for, for my finances and my marriage and my kids? And what is your will for all the stuff in my life? To pray that, I have to be grounded in the love of God. I have to know God loves me. The vastness and greatness of his love. And then love produces peace. What, what, what do I get in the end? I get this peace that surpasses understanding. This love that surpasses understanding. This joy that surpasses understanding. In the end, I can move beyond the emotionally driven, self-centered prayer to the spiritually grounded, God-centered prayer. That's the simple that's the simple reality. That's where I can end up. I can pray the, deeper, the deepest prayer that Jesus... Jesus prayed the deepest prayer of all. You know, the deepest... We talk about exalting God higher so our prayers go deeper. Jesus prayed the deepest prayer anybody can pray when he said, not my will, but yours be done. And God's will was to send him to the cross so that he would hang there and suffer and die. That is a pretty deep prayer. So God's love produces trust, which produces surrender, which produces peace and confidence and courage and all of those other things. Okay. So let's bring this in. Let's wrap this up. Two things to wrap this up. I said at the outset that when we learn how to pray these God-centered prayers versus these emotionally driven self-centered prayers, there's an incredible benefit to it. There really is. There's something we don't often think about. And uh, let, let me show you this here. Let's look at the end. This is a doxology at the end. So in the middle of his book, before he goes to chapter 4 and before he starts to get real practical and apply all the doctrine he just shared in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Listen to this doxology. Here's what Paul writes. Okay? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is this doxology saying to us? Here's what it's saying to us. The doxology reveals the potential in our prayers when we move beyond the emotionally driven, self-centered prayer to the spiritually grounded, God-centered prayer. When I understand the incredible vastness and greatness of God's love, when I pray for my inner man, when I pray deep inside, when I exalt God, the fatherhood of God, higher in worship so my prayers go deeper. When I get to the, the point of praying spiritually grounded, God-centered prayers, the simple reality is that's the potential of what can happen in my prayers. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. You know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like the peace and the love and the joy that surpasses understanding. It's like we can't comprehend what God wants to do in our life. And why did Paul pray for them? Because of the incredible responsibility and potential they had because of everything God was in them and everything they were in God and because of their spiritual inheritance, because of those blessings, because of the gospel working in their life. And so he prays and he says, boy, if you get to the point of understanding God's love and worshiping God and exalting God and praying for your inner man, I'm telling you, you have no idea what God can do and will do through you. 
Now let me leave you with this. So how do we, let's go back to that idea again. Well, we have these, we have these four, four things then, okay? Four observations. Paul equates prayer with worship. Paul exalts the fatherhood of God. Paul prays below the surface. And Paul grounds ourselves in the love of God, okay? So here's the thing. I want to give you an illustrative, an illustrative look at the love of God that you cannot escape. I'm going to show you a picture today where you can understand the love of God in a way that I don't care where you go, I don't care what you're going through, I don't care where you're at, you cannot escape the love of God, okay? I want you to see this. It's real simple. I want you to close your eyes with me a minute. I want you to take a deep breath in. Let that deep breath out. And I want you to think about the air that we breathe as the love of God. Wherever I go, the air and the love of God, it just consumes me. It is the love of God that is around me. It is the love of God that is in me. Isn't that great? You can open your eyes again. Just think about that. Whenever you're struggling, whenever, just stop and take a breath and say, there's God's love. There's God's presence. There's God's spirit. He's right here. He's with me. Maybe you're going through a really difficult time. Maybe you're just really on edge. Maybe you've, you've reached the end of your rope. Just take a deep breath in. The air we breathe and the air that consumes us, that, that fills us up, that's the love of God. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you. I want to thank you. That you are a God who, who you're our Father. You want us to bring you our requests. You, you tell us to bring us your requests. And, and, and Lord, but, but it's more than just the requests. It's, it's acknowledging who you are, that you care about us, that you care about our needs, that you're greater than our needs, that you have a will within our needs. And Lord, help us get to the point where we can, where we can trust you so deeply, that we can pray deeply, that we can pray for your will that we can pray for your word to be realized in us, that we can pray for your word to expose those things in us that, that, that are affecting our life negatively, that we would see those things and, and, and ask you to help us work those issues out. Lord, I want to thank you for loving us. And Lord, help each one as we leave today, this week, just be reminded that your love is everywhere. It is high, it is deep, it is wide, it is long. There's nowhere we can go to escape your presence, your spirit, your love. There's nothing we can go through that your love will not be there and walk through uh, the journey with us. Give you all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' name, amen.